hang on is somebody like eating something or like it sounds like there's a sound of like chips or something going on here yeah, sorry yeah um yes okay don't um, do that. that that that'll stop in like 20 seconds sorry i will all right well then i'm just gonna i'll wait otherwise yeah. you can just otherwise you can just mute yourself that's all that's also fine <laughs> that's true i could do that why don't you do that Hello, listeners of the same but worse podcast. All, uh, all ten of you, we're uh, we're bringing you a little special today, a little uh, little treat. Uh, might make it into an intermittent series here, where we talk about elections, and specifically, we're going to talk about the Turkish election, the first round of which recently took place, and this is in advance of the second round of the Turkish election, which is a runoff between longtime President uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan and the uh, challenger, Kemal Kirishtarulu. Erdogan nearly won a majority outright in the first round, despite polling that suggested maybe Kirishtarulu had maybe a better chance of, of winning an outright majority if, if that was to be believed, which obviously that didn't take place. To talk about this, I have a new panel of people that you haven't heard before. My friend Naveed, and then Naveed's friend, Jesse. Naveed, go ahead. Our- yeah. All right. Well, I'm a uh, I'm a longtime fan of uh, Andrews and a uh, longtime listener of the pod. You know, my my qualifications for this are that I uh, I have a lot of interest in elections. I've been interested in Turkey specifically for probably a decade and a half. Hopefully, I'll, I'll be able to provide some interesting uh, thoughts. And alongside myself, I thought it would be nice to have Jesse on. And Jesse, you can feel free to talk about yourself. Yeah, so um, I've I've been interested in international elections for a very long time as a hobby of mine. I'm a relative newcomer to being interested in Turkish elections, which is a more recent interest of mine. But I've been interested in kind of the the history of Turkey and issues of political economy and generally the economics of Turkey. Um, for probably five or six years. I'm no expert on these matters, but I've I've, I've read a lot about it. And I, I think it's uh, very interesting to consider, especially in the context of this election. So, Well, in a professional context, you do have some level of expertise on economics. Yes, I, I do. Some. <laughs> Not in currency issues, but uh, yes. So I, I can't talk about that <laughs> professionally. Well, we have we have a good panel here, and although none of us is Turkish, so we're just we're just kind of we're spitballing. To that end, let's set a little bit of historical groundwork and just talk about you know the founding of the Republic of Turkey, the sort of the Kemalist Republic, leading up maybe to the election of Erdogan in the early two thousands. Um, he's been there for quite some time. I think since is two thousand three. Is that right? Yeah, he's like. Um... I don't know who, who's the guy who's been around since 2003. LeBron. Yeah, he's like the LeBron of <laughs> Turkey. He's he's very tall, actually. So I think it, it works in his case. Like, 
modern Turkey was founded after World War One uh, by Mustafa Kemal, uh, who later became known as Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, which means father of the Turks. The early history of Turkey was sort of like an intense version of sort of the uh, nationalism, uh, na- national self-determination in the wake of like the uh, Paris Peace Conference and uh, the end of World War One. It had a treaty called the Treaty of Sevra imposed on it in like 1917 or 1919 or something like that, which was a as the name, I think, well, it doesn't really, <laughs> it sounds, it sounds like severe. So that's how I always remember that that's, that was the severe treaty. And then there's the Treaty of Lausanne, which was a few years later, which was uh, less severe, but um, Ataturk was like a big war hero uh, in World War One, uh, specifically in the Gallipoli campaign. And, you know, uh, Turkey emerged out of the Ottoman Empire. And I think a really important thing to, to note about like, the founding of modern Turkey is that it was founded on a principle of extreme secularism, which was sort of unique for maybe the Islamic world at the time. So I went through that and I probably, you know, there's probably some inaccuracies in what I said, or I'm glossing over some stuff, but, um, well, but I, I, wanted... I, I, I do have some, uh, some thoughts here. Okay. Well, I wanted to, to sort of jump us off and, and, and try to get us into talking about like the founding of a secular Republic and what that means. Right. Yes. So go ahead. Yeah. So I'd start by saying um, that yeah, you can also think of the Treaty of Severs in the fact that it severed various parts of Turkey from from the nation. It's planned to sort of divvy up w- what is the current Turkish state, Anatolia, in between a variety of European powers and neighboring states. So you see in Turkey a sort of advanced version of the uh, century of humiliation that really dominates contemporary Chinese thinking, which I think is an important analogy. And so you end up with that being reversed with the restoration of the modern Turkish state um, as a result of the Turkish victory in the Greco-Turkish war of the early 20s. And so you get a state founded on Kemalism, which is a term that'll come up over and over again as the as basically the founding ideology of the Turkish Republic and the ideology that has been followed by most of its governments ever since, but not Erdogan's government, and the ideology of the main opposition party in Turkey today, the CHP. And so I think that the thing to remember about Kemalism is that it's an ideology of the 1920s. It's very much part and parcel with the things that people were thinking in the 1920s. So it adheres to a 1920s conception of progress. Uh, it's anti-clerical, um, very much anti-conventional Islam, although the relationship of Islam to the state is a little bit more fraught than uh, than a simple sort of anti-clerical analysis might indicate. And it's also very much into um, state control of the economy in the way that... Um, that was very common in the 1920s. And that's something that will be relevant as we talk about economic policy here. Uh, And so in in a lot of ways, despite presenting itself as this liberal liberal ideology, uh, its modernist uh, preoccupations have a lot to do with another ideology that came about in the 1920s, which is fascism. It might be good for us to talk about like the sort of spectrum of modernist political thought like in the post-world war one period that sort of maybe runs from the liberal side being like wilsonian progressivism 
to the the right wing side of like Mussolini's uh, fascism. And also, you know, there's like this is something that that is like a tendency across the world. Like like this is around the time that Mexico has like a, a constitution that is trying to curtail the influence of the Catholic Church, for instance, which I find it's similar to what is going on in Turkey at the same time. So, cause I think it might be a little bit provocative to say, oh, this is like fascism when obviously like in our contemporary minds, we think of fascism as, a, as mostly equivalent to Nazism, but fascism maybe like Mussolini and fascism is a little bit different. And so let's just kind of talk about Kamalism and, and situate it within sort of this spectrum of, from Wilsonian progressivism to Mussolini fascism. I think an interesting reference for Kemal in this sense is Chiang Kai-shek, because something you see a lot in the 1920s in the parts of the world that were seen by the people who lived there in some sense as backward was the need to catch up, whether that be economically or socially. And so the Kemalist analysis of Turkey was it was held back by the stultifying influence of the clergy and by its inefficient economic system. And, you know, the former could be resolved by education, by replacing the Arabic script with the Latin script to make Turkey more culturally Western, and by reducing Arabic influences on the language and on the religion whereas the latter could be resolved by state direction to propel the economy in a more suitable direction. And, you know, that sort of state intervention in the economy is, I would say, the prime current in modernist thought economically in the 1920s. Um, You do see it in Italy, where that is essentially the basis of fascism, the integration of various sectors of the economy through direction by the state. And I think this sort of this sort of dirigism is uh, really characteristic of the Turkish economy. Uh, the idea that the state can serve as the proper moderator for all forms of society, including both religion and the economy. Yeah, I think it makes sense to to discuss another element that I think would that I think like I keep thinking about what would distinguish Kemalism and kind of like Turkish nationalism more generally. Like I would say that nationalism is very central to Kemalist thinking and it kind of to the, you know, Turkish worldview. It was very um, important to understanding contemporary politics in Turkey. And I think much of this stems from the, the long history of Turkey, even before World War One, relating to the the decline of the Ottoman Empire, and the fact that much of this relates to series of defeats and wars, for instance, fought against Russia, and I think that this there's a kind of revanchism and a sense of struggle that's kind of inherent to Kemalist thinking in that sense, and in Turkish pedagogy education system that really instills to this day, I think, in a lot of people in Turkey, a sense of that that they were wronged by European powers. And this is very important to understanding, for instance, a lot of Erdogan's rhetoric and a lot of the things he says, 
and why it has such an impact and why there's so much popular appeal when he, for instance, ties the opposition to Joe Biden or foreign leaders, NATO. Like these are the the West is seen by many Turks as being, and I, I think some people may wrongly, like, you know, some casual observer might wrongly attribute this based off, I don't know, xenophobia or something to like Islamism or something. But I don't, I really do not think that is the source of this type of rhetoric's appeal. I think it has to do with myths relating to Turkish, um, nat- you know, the founding of the nation, which absolutely comes out of, you know, the end of World War One, and especially the Britain's conduct in all of this, um, for instance. So that, that's not a pretty topic to discuss what happened after World War One in Turkey for various reasons, but that is very much instilled in um, Turks, the, the, the sense of what happened in that period. And of course, added Turks' role in it, he is valorized quite a lot. He's everywhere. And I think that's important to understanding all of this, right? Like added Turk is venerated. There are um, portraits of him everywhere. And that he, he played a key and pivotal role in what happened after World War I and founding the country. So I guess that's what I have to say. The the role of nationalism is very important. Yeah, I think, you know, maybe more so than any other country that I can think of. Turkey's got like a real like, you know, put it on the bulletin board. No one believed in us. Like, you know, (laughs) like they they're like the ultimate. Yeah. Bulletin board sports team kind of nationalist mentality. Uh, The other one that I can think of that's like that is Serbia, like more recently because of like the NATO interventions there in the 90s feels like a real us against them kind of like nobody believed in us We're you know we're our own thing and we're always we'll always come through and that kind of stuff so um but but i guess it's important to understand about turkey that like turkish nationalism is not just kamalism even though kamalism is known as like a sort of the nationalist party i think would be a way that a lot of people would say it but like most turks are like pretty insanely nationalistic um yes Yes, like rapidly it's, nationalistic, regardless of their political affiliation. That's yes. like sort of pre-political. Yes, uh, that that this is absolutely yes. I think in a sense, like Kamalism is such a big umbrella term that like it is like many players identify with it in Turkish politics today. And I think if you look at the founding of the Turkish, it, it's it can be reasonable to say that because of the influence of Ataturk. That, that uh, his ideology is suffused throughout all the institutions, even today. Um, so I think what I wanted to say is that the role of nationalism in Turkey, in terms of uh, sort of shaping the mentalities of the typical Turkish voter is very prevalent. But I think what's interesting is that, you know, if you look at the other end of the spectrum, I think that is where you see the influence of kind of alternative ideologies and views of what it means to be a Turk that are more grounded in Islam. You know, I guess we can get to that later. But I think when if we discuss uh, policies related to Syrian refugees or foreign policy, um, I think that's where you see the cleavage between Turks who um, who still believe, you know, who uh, you know like Ataturk, they see him as a national hero, and they you know, are Turkish nationalists through and through, but also they are very, very, very devout Muslims and they they adore Erdogan. Well, they may have different views on some of these issues, be precisely for these reasons. 
Yeah, speaking of Islam, uh, I do want to bring up something that I alluded to earlier, which is the complicated relationship between the Turkish state and Turkish identity and Islamic identity. Because on the one hand, the Turkish Republic, especially originally, was quite hostile to religion. You know, women who covered their heads were not allowed in universities until after, you know, Erdogan came to power. The Turkish government tried to ban the call from to prayer from being said in Arabic. They insisted for for a couple decades on it being said in Turkish. And so it's easy to think of the Turkish state as just being completely hostile to Islam, as trying to root out Islam as an influence in society. But on the other hand, when you think about probably the foundational trauma of the birth of the Turkish Republic, you can think of the population exchange between Greece and Turkey that happened in 1923 that undid the um, multi-ethnic, multi-confessional nature of the Ottoman Empire and tried to transform Turkey and Greece into two nation states that were both completely separate from each other. And the basis for this population exchange, the basis by which people were told that they were Turks or that they were Greeks, had nothing to do with language or ethnicity or anything like that. It was purely on the basis of religious identity, which is something that you would associate with the Ottoman Empire, but not necessarily with the modern Turkish state. And so, you know, Cretans who had been on Crete since time immemorial, who spoke Greek to each other, but who were Muslim were regarded as Turks, they were sent to Turkey, and now their descendants are Turks. And so clearly, despite its rejection of Islam as a religious basis for the state, being a Muslim is nonetheless essential to the Turkish state's conception of what it means to be a Turk. I think that's a good transition into talking about, you know, minorities within Turkey. Now, we talked you know, and, and I, I don't know that this has much electoral salience to this day, but obviously it's sort of one of the foundational traumas of of the Turkish state is, of course, the the Armenian genocide and then, you know, the um, fraught relationship with the historical existence of the Armenian genocide that the modern Turkish state has taken on ever since. Well, as Naveed was talking about, and, and this flows from sort of the purely distilled Wilsonianism of the Turkish project is that Turkey is a state for Turks. I mean, much the same way that like Israel is a state for Jews, like by law, Turkey is like de jure a state for Turks. There are like laws on the books that say you cannot insult Turkishness. I think it's called Article 301. All sorts of like intellectuals are, you know, get written up for violating this law for like talking about the Armenian genocide or, or like criticizing party leaders or, you know, things like that. So this is like a very real modern political issue, even though, you, you know, I don't think there's any sort of Armenian voting block within Turkey or anything like that. That was pretty pretty well and truly rooted out by the genocide itself. So, But there is a substantial minority population in Turkey, which is the Kurds, a sort of a, a stateless people spread out across mainly Turkey, Iraq, and Syria. And that is a salient like electoral block. Being considered the Kurdish candidate, I think, is one of the things that has really hurt Kirishtarlu in his you know a- attempt to be sort of like broadly palatable to the electorate. Historically, like Kurds have been, there have been all sorts of ways to try to consider them to be Turkish or to try to consider them to not be Turkish. Um, Kurds have been called mountain Turks, I believe, famously within within Turkey uh, in sort of an attempt to deny that like Kurdish identity is like separate from Turkishness. But then there are other times when like 
I would say probably more mostly so in like the last 10 or so years of uh, under Erdogan when he's pivoted away from surprisingly he was sort of initially aligned with with Kurds in Turkey or at least was sort of extending an olive branch to them but but you know like now it's it's very much seen as sort of like the internal other so why don't we talk a little bit about ethnic diversity specifically Kurdish but you know to the extent we can bring in some other stuff too that that's relevant let's let's just let's go through that the reason that um that Kurds are still present in the Turkish state when you know the Greeks and the Armenians and the like are erased from the fabric of Turkish culture is because Kurds are Muslim and so because of that the policy of the state historically has been to assimilate assimilate them rather than to eradicate or expel them from the state in some sense the um you can draw comparisons between the policy of the 20th century Turkish state toward the Kurds to the policy of the American state toward the Indians. The idea that Kurdish culture was something that could disappear. And, you know, in the words of the Book of Mormon, they could become white and delightsome. And one of the reasons that er- Erdogan uh, and the AKP had a more liberal policy toward the Kurds was because of the their shared Islamic identity. One ongoing trend you see, I think, in sort of the AKP ideology toward the Kurds is to emphasize their Islamicity, their Muslimness, and downplay their Kurdishness. To say that, you know, Kurds are Turks because they're Muslim and they're in Turkey. And so naturally, um, every Turkish Muslim is a Turk. And I think increasingly in the last few years, as the policy has changed and the government has become more intolerant toward dissent, this has become applied in more heavy-handed ways, where the um, the Kurdish parts of eastern Turkey are being treated as part of Turkey's Islamic heritage, uh, to the exclusion of any Kurdish identity identity they have. Um, but you you do see this um, interplay between Islamic identity and non-Turkishness in the context of another minority, which is the Syrians. So Jesse, I don't know if you have something to say about that. I think it's important to think about uh, the my, minority policy. I think in order to really discuss the issue of Syrian refugees, which played a big role in this election, it's important to think back to the Syrian civil war, where Erdogan... Erdogan, of course, played a big role in terms of his foreign policy in intervening in favor of the Syrian rebels against Assad, you know, having um, quite a big role in kind of trying to support them. And this actually, I think what's interesting about this intervention is that, of course, I, I would argue personally that this is very in line with kind of the ideological views that are part of the AKP, which, um, you know, uh, are, are very Muslim, which of course will put them in opposition to the Assad regime. The point is, it's like, a, it's, it's an Islamic popular movement is what I would describe as the AKP at heart. And um, that, that's sort of the basis of this party. And as part of this, they were opposed to Assad. And so they intervene in the civil war. You know, as part of this, I think they take a more tolerant line when it comes to Syrian refugees. Many, many Syrian refugees come into Turkey. And ultimately, Turkey is, Turkey, Turkish policy is quite accepting towards them. But this becomes very contentious because 
um, at the end of the day, Syrians are from a different ethnicity than Turks. You know, they speak a different language. You know, they have different degrees of education and different, you know, customs, practices and the like. And there are many, many Syrians who come into Turkey. But nevertheless, I think that if you look at the policies of the AKP they were under Erdogan, they were quite tolerant towards the Syrian refugees overall. I mean, they accepted many, many of them and, you know, they were given legal status in some form, albeit nothing comparable to what they could attain in a different country. For instance, I believe their children are not given Turkish citizenship. Um, they are not given work permits. But this has become a contentious issue in the Turkish election. I, and I think the opposition has uh, played a big role in trying to turn them into a kind of boogeyman, kind of using the line that Erdogan wants, like AKP wants to give them more rights. I think there's sense that uh, the AKP could use them as political tools. It's well known that Syrian refugees in Turkey love Erdogan, for instance, and would be a, if they were granted more political rights, they could be a big voting bloc. Sorry, I just wanted to just interject a little bit of context, which is that, well, first of all, the, the Syrian regime is not the Syrian, like the Assad government, like Assad himself is like a minority religious sect that's not seen as Islamic. Yes. It, um, it's sort of yes. like, it's sort of like a, weird version of Islam, right? That's my understanding. Yeah, yeah, the owl, yes. But, so but, the, but like mainstream Muslims do not consider it to be Islamic. So it they are definitely not simpatico with with Erdogan's like AKP, which is a popular Islamic movement. And second, I yeah, just I mean, wanted to, to give some context that the um like Arab versus Turkish in nationalist like Kamala's history is a, a pretty stark divide. Like one of the projects of Kamala's Turkey like in the 20s, for instance, was like renaming every single place in Turkey that had an Arabic name to have a Turkish name. So like being Arabic in Turkey is not, it, I mean, that's a big difference. It's a very big distinction and one that has like a, a big historical uh, divide in specifically in like Kamalist nationalist thought and perhaps less so in, um, you know, like the more popular Islamic thought. Uh, so sorry, Naveed, go ahead. On that note, actually, a contemporary issue in Turkish historiography is the fact that the early Turkish Republic sought to purify the Turkish language of Arabic and Persianate words, and in fact was so successful in doing so that it is now very difficult for a typical Turk to be able to understand Ottoman Turkish, which makes it very difficult to do archival research because... The archives are just full of words that ordinary Turks don't know, even independently from their being written in Arabic script instead of Latin. Anyway, on the note of the Syrian refugee issue, an important factor here actually is um, Kemal Kilistarolu's own religious background. Because as we've discussed, um, Bashar al-Assad is an Alawite, which is definitely a, a heterodox Islamic group, definitely one that mainstream Sunnis uh, would not consider Islamic in the standard sense. And Kemal Kilistarolu is an Alevi, which is not actually related, but is a similarly heterodox group with similarly unusual views on um, Ali, the companion of the Prophet. And so there is a natural convergence of opinion between these sort of Shiite-inspired heterodox groups that would lead 
you know, Alev used to be um, more sympathetic toward Assad and less sympathetic toward these uh, Sunni migrants from the Arab world than you would see among the popular Sunni factions that are represented by the AKP. Kilsterl's religious identity is, you know, it's unusual. Uh, he would he would be the first Alevi president, but he belongs to a group that has a lot tied up in the sort of secular identity of the Turkish state because it's a group that the Turkish state sees as Muslim, but not part of the main current of Turkish Islam. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I think plays in, in Syria as well that's sort of overlooked in U.S. commentary on Syria, for instance, is that like there's certain religious minorities in Syria that like, you know, did not particularly care for the idea of the factions that the U.S. favored coming to power because chances are that those were going to be more popular religious movements that like wouldn't be particularly kind to certain religious minorities, uh, especially like the, you know, members of the ruling minority in, in Syria, the Alawites. It wouldn't, it, you know, they, I think, perhaps correctly identified that it'd be pretty bad news for them if that if their government fell. So that's something that I think is sometimes lost in in considering other parts of the world is that we don't necessarily think of, uh, well, we just get, we have a certain perspective from watching our country's news that is, is obviously totally slanted toward the, the prerogatives of our country, and understandably so, but that means it's difficult to see things maybe from a perspective that is a different perspective. I found my field on Blueberry Hill, on Blueberry Hill, when I found you. I did maybe want to talk about Turkey's sort of unorthodox role as like a member of NATO that's also like one of Russia's biggest trading partners. I think that's like an important thing to talk about with the like the global position of Turkey. I mean, Turkey is like right there. You know, it's very close to Syria. It's very I mean, it's pretty close to Ukraine. Like it's close to all the stuff that's popping off right now. And it it is positioned at this sort of junction between east and west, much like Russia is. You know, there's a part of Turkey that's in Europe, the part the part the, on one side of the Bosporus. Um, and Turkey is a member of NATO that has U.S. nuclear weapons in its territory. Now, Turkey is also a country that uh, has historic trade ties to Russia, remains one of Russia's biggest trade partners, has taken sort of an unorthodox one foot in, in NATO camp, one foot kind of OK with Russia, uh, even after the Ukraine war, has bought like Russian weapons and actually got kicked out of like the F-35. I believe Turkey cannot, can no longer buy F-35s, which I'm sure is a terrible loss, uh, you know, to not get that brilliant piece of technology. But because they kept buying too many uh, Russian um, like missile defense systems. And uh, but <laughs> but Turkey's still in the supply chain of the F-35, which is very funny, like because it was they got like some of the pork barrel spending for like manufacturing. And it was too difficult to relocate that. So they still make part of the F-35, but they can't buy it. So that's a fun little fact. But but Turkey does have this unusual sort of straddling position, not only just, you know, geographically between East and West, but like maybe more so than any other major country. It's hedging its bets between like sort of the U.S. NATO faction and like the, you know, the loose confederation of Russia, China, whatever, that are sort of opposed in some sense to U.S. policy. So I wonder if we we can speak on that and and maybe Erdogan's role in that. Do you, do we think Kirishtarlu would would 
reverse course on that would take a side. So I'll I'll start by um, speaking on what I know about, which is the origins of Turkish membership in NATO. Because Turkey does seem to stand out when you look at NATO members. It's uh, awfully far from the North Atlantic, and it's culturally different than all the rest of the states in NATO. You know, naturally, this comes back to the late 1940s, when NATO was established as a bulwark against the Soviet Union. If you look at Turkey's position, it is uh, on the borders of the former Soviet Union. In fact, it was the only me- NATO member state that bordered the Soviet Union. In the late 1940s, you know, there was a lot of anxiety in that part of the world about going communist. This was around the time that the government of Czechoslovakia was overthrown in a coup and replaced by a communist government. There were fears in a lot of countries that uh, what happened in Czechoslovakia could happen to them. In Turkey, this was probably unlikely because Turkey at the time had no real communist support. It had no homegrown communist movement. But nevertheless, the Turkish government was worried about you know, falling under Soviet influence. And in fact, this led to an interesting incident of cooperation between Turkey and Greece. Greece, of course, at the time, fighting a major civil war against its own communist insurgency, where Turkey and Greece both collectively demanded to join NATO, which was originally not terribly excited about that prospect. And Turkey at the time saw itself as offering perhaps a bridge between the Western world and the Arab world. That in itself is sort of interesting if you know what we've been talking about, where the the idea that the Turkish Republic was defining itself against the Middle East. But you can see here the sort of strategic priorities that led Turkey to seek membership in NATO meant that they were willing to you know, work with the Arab world and squash their beefs with Greece because it was so important to be part of NATO. And in fact, I think the Turkish government is right to prioritize NATO membership to that extent because it has been incredibly important. Turkish membership in NATO is why now the Turkish government can veto Swedish membership in NATO for no real reason, and Sweden can't do anything about it. It's why Turkey is still so uh, strategically important for the United States and for the West. And it provides a powerful bargaining chip for Turkey on the world stage. Yeah, I mean, you know, Turkey, missiles in Turkey was was part of the reason for like the, you know, in the in the lead up to the Cuban Missile Crisis. I mean, you know, Turkey has been a big part of you know, global anti-communism, you know, U.S.-led global anti-communism, basically since it came into NATO, which was almost right away, basically, right? I mean, like in the in the early 50s, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. İçimde kaynayan bir mahşer var. Bu mahşer bir de annelerin kalbinde kaynar. Çünkü onlar yün örerken pencere önlerinde ya da çamaşır sererken bahçelerde. So let's let's set the stage, you know, it's it's 2003. Uh, I don't I actually don't know if I can't remember if that's the exact year, but I mean, you know, it's right around the time of like the Iraq war popping off and like, you know, post 9-11 United, United States. I mean, it's a totally crazy time to be a country in the Middle East, for sure. 
And, uh, you know, Tur Turkey had been ruled by Kemalists for pretty much, I mean, it, it wasn't like a one party state like Mexico. But as far as I'm as I know, there's only a couple times before Erdogan where like a non Kemalist uh, like ruling party candidate actually won an election. So let's just let's go. Let's just talk about, you know, what happened in the early 2000s that that marked this change in in, in Turkish politics and what has made it durable. Well, I think you have to go back a little bit further than that to a, a fellow by the name of Nejmetin Erbakan, who was really the first avowedly Muslim politician, avowedly Islamic politician, to have real success in Turkey. His story starts in the 1970s. You know, his his party got into parliament in um, the election of 1973. In 1974, it managed to get into government which, uh, as far as I know, was the first time that an avowedly Islamic party was participating in a uh, coalition government and had ministers and all, everything that goes with that. You know, the, the military was uneasy with this, this sort of participation, with the fact that the uh, civilian authorities were willing to let the Erbakan movement into power. And so in 1980, what you see is a coup that ends Turkish democracy, at least for a time, leads to the banning of all existing politicians and political parties, and is designed to restore secularism, to restore Turkish values, um, with the armed forces seeing itself as a guarantor of those, of those values. The actual time that democracy was suspended was fairly brief. Uh, the coup happened in 1980, there were elections in 1983. But you do see a constant tension between, you know, between civilian leadership that wants to work with the Islamists, that understands that working with the Erbakan movement is important to a functioning government, and the uh, military which sees these values as incompatible with Turkish values, and is willing to abrogate abrogate democratic processes if those processes lead to these people uh, gaining power. As a result of these regular democratic processes, uh, Nejmetin Erbakan, in fact, became prime minister in 1996, uh, which was the first time that a, an avowedly Islamist uh, party came to power, had the premiership. Prime minister used to be the operative office. Yes. Oh, yes. That's a, a major political issue in this campaign also. <laughs> we'll get to that. But it is yes. important. You know, if you're keeping track at home, he was not the president. He was a prime minister. And that was actually the one you wanted to be in in the 90s. Yes. And so um, Nijmetin Erbakan's time as prime minister lasted just about exactly a year. In 1997, he was overthrown in uh, what a lot of online sources will describe as the postmodern coup, where the... Uh, the military essentially submitted a memorandum indicating that his government could not last further. His The government was toppled, a different government put in its place. Um, Nezmetin Erbakan's party was banned. He was imprisoned, which is um, sort of a remarkable thing to happen in the context of a uh, democratic state in the 1990s. Right. Well, you know, one, I think, important piece of context here is that the Turkish military has intervened in Turkish politics pretty regularly up until the Erdogan period, really. There were coups in the 70s, 80s, 90s, but not today. But like, you know, this I think it's important to note that, like, you know, we 
maybe in, in the United States, we think of the army as sort of a conservative force, although maybe it, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. But in, especially in, in developing countries, especially in the early 20th century, the army was often like one of the most progressive, if not the most progressive institution in all of society and was where a lot of the sort of like reforming modernist energy and dynamism in various societies was. And I, that is, as far as I know, pretty true of Turkey as well. So, uh, you know, Turkey's army seeing itself as sort of the safeguard for like secularism and like the sort of the values of the Republic, I think is, is, is pretty typical of like countries that, that have the same development pattern as Turkey. Maybe the, the Turkish army's influences has, has lasted in and, and been more direct in politics in a way that's a little bit unusual, but this is certainly like ideologically consistent with, you know, what you would expect of a, a, an army like the Turkish army, basically. Yeah, I think uh, it's it's uh, important to consider the fact that um, if we roll back the clock kind of to um, the first period where there were Turkish elections, the fact that um, the CHP, which of course is the Kemalist political party, has from this period onward has a quite abysmal electoral track record. I think it's interesting to consider that along with the fact that overall kind of the Turkish um, power structure of this period, so the people who would be in the judiciary, the people in the military, um, the people in the bureaucracy, um, you know, were committed and avowed to upholding, I guess you could describe it as like Lysit in Turkey. And I guess like they're often described as being white Turks, people who are elites. Um, and so I think that it's sort of like the this the deep state concept comes out of this. But in practice, the the populace, at least in terms of their voting record in many, many subsequent elections, did, was not enamored with these quite aggressive secularist policies that were very prohibitive on people's free religious expression. And so I think that interplay is quite important once we turn towards um, Erdogan's rise, um, given the fact that I guess, should we just jump to that, I guess? Is well, that... I, I, was go I was going to mention that um, speaking of this abysmal record, uh, you know, the CHP is the Republican People's Party. It's the party of Ataturk. It's the party of Kemal Kilistarulu. It's the current opposition party, the leading one. You know, the last time that it won an election was 1977. There are a lot of caveats here, but um, it has not had a great record. People are not necessarily interested in buying what it has to sell. But there are there have historically been a lot of structural advantages. So I wanted to ask about sort of the the collapse of of the CHP and and it's sort of like declining electoral relevance. Is this like a pasakification situation where it's like you know one of these historically liberal parties or whatever collapsing like a lot of the you know socialist parties in Europe did? Is this more like PRI finally ceding to to Pan in? in the 2000 election or whenever that was early 2000s or is it more like uh like ireland where there's kind of two parties that sort of claim the mantle of the state in a slightly different way based on like historical legacy of the early 20th century what's like the best point of comparison for this party and like you know its decline in fortunes in the later half of the 20th century and, and almost not i wouldn't say to irrelevance at this point but it's certainly like you know the little brother party at this point so there's not a great comparison I don't um, because of the unusual characteristics of the Turkish state 
one of which being that there have been military coups from time to time and that um, those have dramatically upended the political system. But I would say that out of those three options, um, it's definitely not the first. You could say it's some combination of the latter two. I think one of the important things to note about the CHP is that it presents itself as a social democratic center-left party, but that's not its DNA. You know, it's a ruling party of the 20th century. It's not, other than a period in the 1970s when it was led by Bülent Ejevit, it has never been particularly left-wing. It's a liberal party for coastal elites. Another issue is that the CHP label is, it's sort of flexible. It represents an emotional connection to the founding of the state more than it represents an actual through line in terms of a lasting political organization. Now in the 2020s, as was the case in the 1950s, you know, the CHP label refers to the people who claim the mantle of Ataturk and who want his legacy. Sort of a a catch-all label for those people. When presented with other options, the Turkish electorate is not necessarily enamored of that particular label, but obviously there are enough Turks who who do identify with that legacy that it yeah it can still command a significant portion of support. Now, the other point of comparison I was interested in drawing is is maybe like the collapse of Arab nationalism in the later half of the 20th century and, and the rise of you know Islamic politics in basically everywhere across the Arab world that that process kind of happened where. And, you know, this is probably a bigger question than for, you know, analyzing the Turkish election. But, you know, it seems like the national project in the 20th century was broadly speaking something that people believed in up until a certain point. And then beyond that point, the national project failed to captivate in the same sort of way that it did earlier. And I mean, you you know, part of this, there's a parallel to this, too. uh, That's more of like the, the, the sort of the God that failed narrative of communism as well. Um, where these sort of secular ideologies, whether they're nationalist or communist, or you know, sometimes a mixture of both of them, honestly, um, th- these these sort of narratives of that that Im- that implied some kind of progress either within the nation or or, or super supranationally um, sort of petered out. And do you think this that this is you know that the, the the fall of the CHP is is is parallels that in some way? Um, and I don't know if you have any thoughts on you know, what exactly is causing these, all these, these narratives to get snuffed out in, you know, the, the 80s or 70s or whenever. One of the big points that really leads to this realignment is uh, what happens in 1979, which is the Islamic Revolution in Iran, which is an event that historical materialism had no explanation for. Even for people who weren't Shiite, who didn't support the guardianship of the jurists or whatever else Ayatollah Khomeini was advocating, it represented a realization that um, Islam could be a productive force in politics. And that's really important for the development of Islamism, um, for the lasting appeal of Islamic visions of government as opposed to, you know, capitalist or communist visions. Right. And sorry, sorry to interrupt, but also, you know, the the seizure of the Grand Mosque in the same year, you know, had a similar effect, I think, in the Sunni world. So I don't know. Sorry if you were getting there, but. um, Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And that was the Um, same year as the invasion of Afghanistan as well, which is, you know, sort of a death knell in the idea of, you know, communism in the Islamic world. So you have these three different 
sort of prongs of attack on those things all happening in the same year. I, that's always struck me as being a really interesting sort of confluence point, but you know, I haven't put together any real thoughts on that. So sorry, yeah. I and interrupted. So Go ahead. In Turkey, I think that that's realized in a different way than say in the Arab world, Arab nationalism really falls off in a way that Turkish nationalism doesn't necessarily, because as we've discussed, being a Turk is like listening to Bob Fitzgerald 82 times a year. You know, you're constantly told that um, you're the best. <laughs> That's a shout out for the real fans. Right. Um, the, the, the, the Golden State Warriors Andalou agency. Yes. Yes. The, um, the development of political Islam, it doesn't change that people are Turkish nationalists, but it just leads to a reevaluation of what Turkish nationalism is all about. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Um, and that, you know, that, that does kind of play into the sort of everyone's against us, you know, we're, we're Turks, we're going our own way. And, you know, that's just, that's such a specific thing to, to Turkey that is more durable there, I think, than maybe anywhere else in the world. So in 1997, um, Nezmet Erbakan is removed from office, his political party is banned, and he's sent to prison. One man is pretty unhappy with this as a member of Erbakan's political party. And that man is the mayor of Istanbul. You may have heard of him. He's a fellow named Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And so what he does is he, uh, he recites a controversial poem in public that gets him removed from office and sent to prison for uh, inciting religious or racial hatred. You know, right before he goes to prison, um, Mayor Erdogan uh, drops the number one album of 1999 in Turkey, which is a collection of poems and one song. I've not heard it, but people in Turkey in 1999 sure were. Is there a version of like the Macarena or something? <laughs> or like Smooth by Santana? This is like the needle drop for 1999 in Turkey. Yeah. Just like the the fat boy slim of Turkey. Yeah, exactly. And so Erdogan isn't in prison for long. But this really triggers a, uh, a division in the Erbakan movement because people realize that their strategy isn't working. Even if they gain power, they're not going to be able to keep it. And also their avowedly Islamic agenda uh, means that there's a hard ceiling to their appeal. Even if you look now at like polls of the Muslim world, if you t- look at the percentage of the population that would like to have uh, Sharia law, in the legal system, it's much lower in Turkey than it is in much of the Islamic world. There's a division in the Erbakan movement. One side is the hardliners who want to keep doing what they're doing. The other side is the uh, moderates who want to reinvent the Erbakan movement as a uh, more generically conservative 
um, political movement, something that you might see in Europe, something that looks a lot like Christian democracy, but from an Islamic standpoint, and something that, while inspired by Islamic principles and obviously appealing to believing Muslims, is not explicitly Islamic in a way that the military won't like. And the people who follow that point of view, led by former Mayor Erdogan, form the Justice and Development Party, which has been in power in Turkey ever since 2002. So let's talk about the development part of justice and development and the economic. Yeah. There we go. Perfect transition. Uh, let, let's talk about, I don't know, are they developmentalist in the, in that sort of way? I know that they, they, they, they're, they've been some building projects that they've done that this is a salient issue in this election because the, you know, there was building projects. They use Syrian refugee labor to build a lot of the things they were supposed to build them up to a certain earthquake code. And then there was a big earthquake that happened. And a lot of those buildings fell down. This has become a huge issue one of the places where Erdogan's support has really flagged, despite being like historically stronghold places for him are places that were affected by that earthquake. So let's talk about the economy of Turkey and, and how that has been going under Erdogan. It's interesting to discuss uh, the kind of economic project of Erdogan in the sense that I think the AKP's government under him has in many ways, kind of actually represents a, a shift from the past, but only to the degree that um, the AKP kind of accepted basically a lot of reforms that were imposed on Turkey, um, basically austerity measures after an economic crisis. That was quite severe, quite devastating to Turkey in 2001. Um, as part of this, there was a fiscal crisis that was quite severe. Um, bondholders fled the country. There was capital flight. I think maybe it's beyond the scope to like discuss all the issues that led up to this. But um, you know, given a lot of the issues that Naveed talked about, I think it's fair to say that you know the, the Turkish state was has a great deal of regulation. There was a great deal of state intervention in the economy. Much of it actually rather inefficient, and a lot of state control of industry. And a lot of very generous um, pension programs, and among other things, in labor market regulations. The overall kind of, I think, in some the issue was is that there there was a lot of fiscal problems influencing Turkey, and there was also actually a lot of foreign direct investment into Turkey, and then that dried up suddenly due to this crisis. You know, it's worth keeping in mind that the late '90s and early 2000s were not a happy time. For middle-income countries, you know, the East Asian financial crisis happening a few years before then. So the IMF comes in and forces Turkey to privatize a bunch of these state-owned companies. It, you know, imposes a, many austerity measures on Turkey. And this precedes Erdogan coming to power. It precedes the AKP coming to power. What occurs is that they more or less accept these reforms. There's no push. There's no attempt to reverse any of this. They take it as a given, um, and they they basically get to benefit from the fact that you know there's talk of you know they they push and they try to you know. And what's interesting about the AKP is that they were very interested um, in integrating with the European Union and trying to 
push a bunch of measures to become accepted into the European Union. And this is something that I think is easy to forget now. But at the time, actually, the AKP was behind this. This is pretty important when thinking about investor sentiment and thinking about um, the willingness of foreign investors to come into Turkey. Because I, I think that, you know, in the mid 2000s, late 2000s, given integration that was taking place then and talks at that time, if you're an investor, you know, there could be a sense that maybe investing in Turkey, um, buying Turkish bonds, Effectively, if there was some probability that they could become part of the European Union, which seemed quite possible at the time, then you could do this. This led to a situation where Turkey was running persistent current account deficits. What this means, in effect, is that Turkey was importing more than it was exporting. It was getting a lot of investment flowing into the country, but it was not paying for it. And in, in effect, Turkey, Turkish companies were by and large the main beneficiaries of all this. Turkish com companies were loading on massive amounts of debt. There was also at the same time a big housing boom in Turkey. While this was happening, Turkish levels of economic growth were quite high. I think one way of thinking about this period is actually treating Turkey as being in some ways akin to Eastern Europe during this time period. This was the time period when there was a great deal of economic integration um, kind of on the periphery of, um, I guess what we would describe as Western Europe, you know, in Poland, Romania, Hungary, but also the Baltics. And we can, you know, Greece was also a beneficiary of all of this. We can put Turkey into this list. This was part uh, is part of the integration and the creation of this economic block, you know, massive reduction in barriers to trade that came after this fall of the Soviet Union that come with a currency union. What happens is, is that there can be the creation of large value chains and large manufacturing kind of value chains that come out of this. So this is one factor that's allowing Turkey to grow quite rapidly during this period. All of this ends up making Erdogan extremely popular. This is an economic good time for Turkey, economically good time for Turkey. The main thing that I would say is that the features that made Turkey, Tur the Turkish economy grow so successfully during this period, and in many ways are quite similar to what was happening in Eastern Europe at the time. There was a big inflow in, of investment that you know was probably excessive and that was probably tenuous and that was probably happening in a moment of a bit too much exuberance, but part of the component of growth made sense given the, the big political changes at the time. But this kept continuing. Turkey kept running current account deficits year after year. It happened in the 2010s. It kept happening. Turkish companies were continuing to accumulate debt. We, we didn't talk about the coup, but I would say that there, the turning point kind of came around this period when you know it, there, there were beginning to be some problems with this system. The main issue is this, Turkish companies were borrowing lots and lots of money that they, that they had debt obligations to repay in euros or dollars, but their revenues are in lira. This is a classic uh, recipe for financial crisis because what can happen is that if people in a country who have lira decide that their lira, okay, yeah, I should, I should mention the currency of Turkey is the lira. So, and Turkey has control over its currency. They have their own central bank that's in control of it. 
So they have autonomy over this and its value and monetary policy and all the factors that govern kind of the exchange rate. So what happens is, is if Turkish companies you know, receive revenues in lira, if the exchange rate tumbles and the lira depreciates in value relative to the euro or the dollar, what's going to happen is that Turkish companies will effectively become insolvent. They're, they will become unable to repay their bondholders, which actually will trigger uh, a complete freeze of credit into the country. But in 2018, in the run-up to the 2018 elections, Erdogan started doing some very heterodox things in terms of monetary policy. He starts, um, basically, there's a sense of which he's intervening directly into monetary policy. And interest rates are far too low. And of course, this, actually, what's interesting about this is that Erdogan's statements on these matters are grounded in his political ideology, which I think is fast. I, I'd actually be interested in hearing David's thoughts on this. But Basically, when interest rates are set too low, this is going to create issues when people, when there's no capital controls in place. Because what can happen is that this can create an extra incentive for people to move their cash out of the country, move their lira out of the country. In, the, in middle income countries, people are actually paying attention to exchange rates. They're paying attention to interest rates in other countries and other ways that they can put their currency and this can create the conditions for a spiraling crisis to occur. And um, this is exactly what happened in 2018. Like many crises of this type, it happened quite suddenly. In this case, it happened after the Turkish election of 2018. But all of the signs were there that something bad could easily happen. And when it did, the, the value of the lira plummeted relative to the dollar or the euro rather precipitously. It necessitated a reversal of course, in terms of the interest rate policies, the heterodox ones that Erdogan was kind of touting, which were saying the interest rates are the cause of inflation um, and basically you know, flying in the face of uh, modern economic theory. Um, and of course, in my view, it's complete nonsense what he was saying. This, this reversal that happened triggered a recession that was quite damaging to the Turkish economy. The unemployment rate rose rather dramatically. At this juncture, I think that many people were thinking that in the next election, Erdogan was likely going to be toast because this crisis was absolutely self-inflicted in terms of the heterodox monetary policy leading to a currency crisis that happened quite suddenly, but also because there was a complete and total complacency about um, an economic policy regime that was basically encouraging the country to just live off debt. Interestingly, it was a very liberal economic policy, actually, and one that was quite favorable to, I guess, what you could describe as free markets, but a very um, kind of reckless one, in my view. And that I think that leads us to the current moment and kind of the run up to it. I think maybe it's a good time. I would like to get Navid's thoughts on Erdogan's uh, interventions in monetary policy, though, because in the end, I am I lack a great explanation for many of his statements, honestly. There was an ideological inclination among the current represented by Erdogan and by the AKP, the sort of Islamic current toward free market politics. I think this dates back to really the uh, the dirigist inclinations of Kemalist politics, which prompted real resentment among Anatolians that the government was directing funds toward the coast, toward 
the Mediterranean and toward the Black Sea, which is a dynamic that is fairly common in developing countries. The most obvious example of this is India, where the government inadvertently ended up propping up Bombay at the expense of other swaths of the country. The prime minister during the 1980s was a man named Turgut Özal, who, like many uh, prime ministers in the 1980s, was all about neoliberal economics. And his areas of strength were the same areas that vote for the AKP now. And he was seen as more friendly to religion than a lot of leaders of the past, which I think is all connected. And so I think because of that, you get you get certain ideological inclinations among the strain of politics represented in the Turkish government toward free market politics, which explains a lot of what the government's policy was in the mid-2000s. I think you also uh, there's also a tendency to see the role of, sort of contradictorily, there was a tendency based on the entirety of Turkish history to see the role of the government as a sort of economic mediator to direct economic policy in a way that uh, reverses existing inequalities and perhaps aids the people who voted for the party. And uh, you really see this happening in this current election campaign. I think Jesse can maybe talk more about that. (laughs) I think the main thing to consider in the run-up to this election is the fact that in the few years preceding it, Turkey was in a very perilous economic situation. Um, The COVID-19 pandemic Um, You know, if you want, you can find articles online discussing how maybe due to the financial stresses caused by the the financial crisis is now mostly forgotten that was triggered by COVID, there could be a balance of payment crisis in Turkey. Very scary and ominous term. This happened to Sri Lanka not too long ago, in late 2022. When this happens, there's a total economic collapse. You have to have an immediate kind of reversal. This was actually something that could have happened, um, but it didn't for various reasons. But the economic stresses, I'll skip ahead to 2021 when the lira plummeted suddenly, although it wasn't exactly a surprise or shock to people at this stage. And this coincides with, again, a lot of interest rate issues where you know monetary policy was being far too slack in a climate where inflation around the world was increasing and there was a changing investor perception, readiness to believe that in other countries, interest rates were going to rise, which of course could contribute to a sense in which you should not be having your money in Lira, you should convert your money to other currencies and put it elsewhere or buy bonds from other countries using these converted currencies. This kind of flash crash panic that happened in late 2021 was addressed by Erdogan. And it was addressed by Erdogan in a manner that I believe likely places the country in a great deal of peril. It's a very interesting type of policy response because it is completely heterodox in a sense. And so I think it's quite interesting. Here's what the policy is. Basically, the Turkish government stepped in after this crisis. And in order to stop all of this flight from the lira to other currencies, which is extremely important for the Turkish state to accomplish, Turkey ends up uh, basically backing the lira at a kind of a fixed exchange rate peg, insuring people's money in, in various accounts. This could be for you know 
corporate cash balances, but it can also be for ordinary Turks as well. The idea being that if you provide this guarantee to people and you, you say that like you're fully insured against depreciations of the lira relative to other currencies, what you're going to do is you're going to create a sense of security in the system and you're going to keep your money as lira. And this can be a kind of circuit breaker that prevents the lira from falling off a cliff. The Main issue with this policy, though, is that it's extremely expensive, but it's expensive in a particular way. It requires Turkey to use foreign exchange reserves that it has, like stockpiles of cash, in order to back this policy. Now, there's a finite number of these foreign currency reserves. What's very interesting about this policy is that in order to make this policy sustainable, which is very, very challenging, given the fact that after this happens, again, monetary policy in Turkey becomes unglued from reality. Interest rates are cut again and again in a climate where inflation due to these crises is spiking dramatically. Inflation is going up from an already quite substantial level. I believe it's somewhere in the range of like 10% or so. And it flies up to 100%. It, it's, it's spiking dramatically. This, in effect, Turkey is at serious risk of having hyperinflation. What the Turkish Central Bank does is it cuts interest rates. It slashes interest rates. This is only redoubling the, the possibilities of a crisis. So it really needs to be able to maintain this, maintain this backing of people's money. In order to do this, it needs the currency reserves. Well, what it has to do and what's really interesting from a geopolitical perspective is that what ends up happening is that it, it gets money from other countries. Specifically, in 2022, uh, the UAE, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, they all pledged swap lines to the Central Bank of Turkey. It doesn't directly give the Turkish Central Bank money, but it does offer money in the event that it needs it they can basically do a swap and they can get current foreign currency reserves from these other countries. These are in the range of tens of billions of dollars. What's interesting about this is that Turkey has received a currency swap line from Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, had, foreign relations between Turkey and Saudi Arabia were notoriously terrible throughout the 2010s, specifically, I think, due to what um, Syrian civil war in Turkey's foreign policy there. But interestingly, I believe Erdogan also said, basically condemned Kamal, uh, I mean, Khashoggi's murder. I personally, I, I can't say that I, I understand why Saudi Arabia arranged for a swap line with Turkey. There's a lot we don't know about. Turkey ostensibly had to make some concessions to Saudi Arabia of some kind. There had to be some reasoning or motive for doing this. But at the end of the day, the Turkish government, in order to maintain this extremely lax monetary policy where real interest rates are at this point like negative 80 percent you know they're ridiculous utterly bizarre that they could be so low without having galloping hyperinflation they basically have to maintain a de facto insurance peg where they're burning their currency reserve they need money from elsewhere and they're getting it. And Erdogan is more or less arranged for this to happen. Even more interestingly, the Turkey, there was a finding that there was an error in estimated foreign currency reserves amounting to something like, I believe, $30 billion recently before the election. 
there's speculation that this money could be coming from Russia. And as a matter of fact, no one actually knows the source of this uh, foreign currency reserve error, where it was just announced that, oh, look, we have way more money than we said we had, but it was announced. It is all to say that in order to prevent the lira from um, depreciating in a spectacular currency crisis, the Turkish government has effectively ended up relying upon um, currency reserves from elsewhere, swap lines, guarantees from other governments, ones that are have been friendly with Turkey for some time, but also ones that have not, like Saudi Arabia. And for all that we know, that this could also be due to um, money from other parties that we're not aware of and that are not disclosed. Uh, we don't really know, but I think it's interesting considering that piece when we think about Turkey's relations with Russia during the Ukraine war. It is entirely possible that the primary motive for Turkey's effective you know, basically being a major trading partner with Russia during this war and kind of being a, a site of laundering trade with Russia, being primarily economic, as during this period, the Turkish economy was totally embattled in facing uh, a currency crisis in the few months preceding the war that were causing people to despise and loathe Erdogan. Let's just shift gears just a little bit and move back and, and talk about the uh, 2016 coup, uh, because that, that does actually play in to the currency bit to some degree. Um, my understanding is that the currency crisis was worsened to some degree when a, someone who was seen uh, like like a Turkey like expelled a bunch of ambassadors or tried to expel a bunch of ambassadors related to this incident where they were condemned for some kind of attempt to try or imprison someone who was seen as supportive of the 2016 coup. Now, the 2016 coup is not like a military coup in the same way that that like Turkish military coups have existed before. Uh, in fact, it may not be a coup at all. It may be a complete phantom. It's a very strange in a country that has something called a postmodern coup. This is something that's like perhaps even stranger than that. So that's an interesting thing. It involves, uh, you know, one of the most, uh, you, you know, illustrious residents of the Poconos in Pennsylvania, um, which, by the way, <laughs> in Turkey, it's uh, it's you're really not supposed to say the word Pennsylvania in Turkey. It's this is a fun, fun little fact because it's sort of a metonym for uh, <laughs> Fatola Golan, who is the uh, the um, charter school magnet and like rogue cleric, as I understand it, former Erdogan ally, but turned dissident sort of. Well, this supposed coup was either fomented by him and then it was, you know, the elements of his organization were purged from Turkish society or it was didn't actually happen. And it was just used as an excuse to um, purge elements of Golanist factions from Turkish society, including the civil service and, and the army. It's a really it's a very strange thing. And, you know, it ties in with the original meaning of the word deep state, which I think is something we'll probably want to talk about as well. I mean, we could talk for hours and hours about this stuff, but at some point we're going <laughs> to we're going to want to get to the election. Yeah, Fethullah Gulen is really the Emmanuel Goldstein of Turkey. <laughs> right. In a way that I'm not sure is true of any other country on Earth. Um, he's also, incidentally, the reason why, uh, as of 2018, 
as of 2019, you could not watch Portland Trailblazers games on TV in Turkey. <laughs> right, because we have, yeah, the, the, perhaps the most famous uh, Gulenist acolyte in, in this country is, you know, the man formerly known as Ennis Cantor, now known as Ennis Freedom, who is, you know, since pivoted to being a, like a total China hawk. But prior to that was very much like loving to talk about how Erdogan was literally Hitler. That was his favorite thing to, to, to talk about. So noted basketball player. And if you ask a lot of like right wingers, someone who was drummed out of the league, you know, he's like their version of Colin Kaepernick, where they're like, he was <laughs> he was drummed out of the league because he spoke the truth about China, when in fact it was basically like there was there were like three games in a playoffs one time where he played defense and that everyone was like, This is a miracle. We could never have seen this happening. And the reason that he doesn't play anymore is because he was he can't play defense at all and was kind of yeah, old anyway. So can't play canner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, the the Gulen movement is, I think, worth outlining here. It's sort of confusing, and I'm not going to pretend to know everything about it. At its core, it's sort of an uh, Islamic revivalist movement. Yeah, as far as I know, basically religiously orthodox. Its leader, Fethullah Gulen, as you've mentioned, is weirdly just a charter school magnate in America. In this country, yeah. Yes. There's um, all sorts way- of charter schools that are like not islamic charter schools either they're just like yeah like the way the way these schools will work is that they'll have nondescript names like um harmony science academy and they'll they'll have a bunch of turkish teachers who come to america and they offer better academic standards than the schools around them and i think to some extent they deliver on this and in some way this ties back to uh the Gulen headquarters in was it Sailors Road, Pennsylvania? Right. It's like instead of doing a touring production like Shenyun, another thing that's based in like upstate New York slash Pennsylvania area, uh, and sending that money back, they have charter schools. That's my understanding. Is it's basically just their version of of the Shenyun touring productions, and I sadly they don't use it to like inundate every major metropolitan area with billboards, but um, you know they could get into a real price war with Shenyun if they ever did. Yeah, I mean, I I believe that the uh, Shenyun compound is like 90 minutes from the Gulen compound. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, you visit the Gulen compound, you visit the Shenyun compound, you've had a heck of a day. <laughs> yeah, totally. And I, but... I feel like, you know, it's going to be important to get the high ground between those two compounds, you know? <laughs> like, who, whoever can control the axis between those two. I feel like that's sort of like the new geographic pivot in history, you know? Yeah, that's like um that the Halford Mackinder of our time. E- exactly, yeah. Um. Yeah, and so the Fethullah Gulen was closely involved with the um, AKP at you know the dawn of justice and development, and then he he had a break with, with Erdogan, and yeah, ever since then he has just become the avatar of you know everything that's trying to destroy the Turkish state, as the Turkish government has gone deeper and deeper into the paranoid style. Um, which really started with the uh, Gezi Park protests of 2010. Gulen has become more and more behind, uh, you know, every bad thing that can happen to the government. Yeah, he's like the the the Scooby Doo monster. You're going to tear off the mask, and it's going to be this like 79 year old cleric or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Well, and uh, you know, I think it's worth saying that, like, regardless of whether there was an actual attempt at a coup in 2016, there were like the movement, the Gulenist movement had well and truly infiltrated basically every public institution in Turkish society. 
this goes, this is maybe ties in with the concept that, you know, we hear about more and more in this country, which is the deep state. But the deep state is actually a Turkish concept originally. And it sort of refers to this. This is a country that's had a coup in every decade, basically, um, up until the 2000s. And, you know, the prerogatives of its sort of career functionaries, bureaucrats, army officers, basically everyone who wasn't an elected politician was like an incredibly like like a roadblock to any sort of change away from the sort of the Kamalist Republic. Um, and the deep state is the this idea of, you know, the, the there's this this sort of obdurate group behind the scenes that's, you know, that controls the outcomes of certain, you know, political, it, it, it shrinks the horizons of political possibilities. Like, for instance, you know, in the 90s, when the first Islamic style prime minister came in, they decided you know, the army decided, no, this guy can't be prime minister. And they kicked him out. They put him in jail. And that that sort of that concept of the deep state. Well, if you if you, for someone like Erdogan, you have to understand that, like, he went up against that version of the deep state, the Kamala's deep state. And then, you know, <laughs> now suddenly there's the Gulenist version of the deep state. It's not it's not the same thing. But I mean, it's it's it's there's always like sort of an enemy that's in the institutions that needs to be rooted out. Um, or at least overcome. Well, I, I think that observation is, it's a useful insight into the um, the style of Turkish politics, particularly the style of, you know, the Erdogan movement, because, you know, the cadres came up knowing well that there was this deep state that they had to constantly fight. You know, the sort of, the political meta-narrative, it's tied up in that struggle against against the, the shadowy elites that um, were very real. You know, now that um, the AKP has been in power for, well, at the time it had been in power for over a decade, now it's been two decades, that energy will dissipate unless it's not redirected. And so the Gulen movement, it provides the narrative that I think, you know, the faithful need that they're used to. People who are Gulen, like people who are identified around this movement actually are part of a kind of mysterious, almost like... From the outside, like cult-like seeming group with shadowy influence all over. And, you know, Turks can identify like, oh, yes, this person's aligned with the Gulen movement. Like it's known when people are aligned and certainly before then. And I think they provided, a you know, a scapegoat after this, you know, military intervention to try to remove Erdogan. But I, I think what's interesting to consider is sort of like the extent to which that the crisis of the coup served as an excuse for the government to kind of remove and purge um, the military, purge universities, purge uh, the bureaucracy, purge the media of tens of thousands of employees. And also there were many imprisonments, um, which I think was, you know, th- that served many uses. You could argue that it's for to induce a kind of polarization that locks people into the AKP, but also it has other uses as well, such as consolidating power in the institutions around people who are more favorable to the party. But at the same time, in 2017, there was a constitutional referendum. And I think that if this had been floated before the coup, I'm not sure if it could have succeeded because in the end, uh, and what the con- uh, I guess Navid could talk more about the constitutional referendum. Yeah, I mean, so the the big the big thing that this um, referendum did 
was change the uh, Turkish system of government from you know being based around a prime minister to being based around a president. You know, changing the um, the Turkish presidency from essentially a figurehead position to a powerful executive position. You know, th- this is something that had really strong emotional salience for the opposition. It ended up passing um, with government support with 51.5% of the vote. So it was a very close vote. It makes sense when you think about it, why this is so offensive to the opposition, because this is changing the system of government that had existed, you know, modulo a handful of military coups since the 1940s, Um, remaking it in the image of Recep Tayyip Erdogan to give him a uh, a position where he wasn't subservient to anyone, where, you know, he essentially wielded unaccountable power for the duration of uh, of his presidential term. I want to jump in and just let's talk about corruption in the Turkish system, because I think we, we sure. might think of I, I think there's a there's a sort of a, a folk narrative or like just sort of like a, a vibe in the media that like Turkey is a corrupt country. Uh, that where like election results are, you know, ballot boxes are stuffed and things like that. But really, that's not quite the kind of system that Turkey has. And my characterization of it would be that Turkey is a place where there's sort of there's pre-corrupt, there's pre-election corruption in the sense that like it's a country where the people in power are going to do everything they can to like imprison the popular candidate. They're going to do everything in power to make it like difficult for the opposition candidate to legally run for office. They're going to do everything in power to change who can vote or to change how people vote. Or, you know, it's very much like a sort of, you know, the people in power use their power to slant the election as much as possible in their favor. But then when the actual election occurs, there's not a ton of evidence that there's a lot of funny business going on. Am I pretty accurate with that? Yeah, I think something that you saw repeatedly online during the first first round of this election was people asserting that. Oh, there was definitely vote rigging or things like that. And there was just not a lot of evidence to that to that effect. The uh the opposition had its own vote tally, and as the night went on, the opposition vote tally got closer and closer to the official government numbers in a way that suggested that um the government numbers were in fact an accurate re- representation of the votes that were cast. But Turkey is not necessarily a liberal democracy exactly in the sense that there is um there's a lot of pressure on the media to back the government but there there's just not a ton of evidence that you know ballots are being outright stuffed even if you can you might look at the results of the 2017 constitutional referendum and say that oh it got 51.5% of the vote and conclude that the reason for that is because they rigged it to get themselves over the top This is maybe a good way to transition into talking about sort of the lead up to the 2023 election. But, you know, now we've seen the the first pass of the election. We've seen Erdogan get, you know, half a point away from claiming an outright victory uh, of, you know, 50 percent plus one. 
despite polling that kind of suggested the exact opposite, that suggested that, that Kirishtarulu was going to be the one who was pushing 50% and that Erdogan would be more in the 45 to 47 range, wherever Kirishtarulu ended up. You know, we've talked about the fact that like Turkey has come through incredibly difficult economic times. Turkey has come through COVID, not, not particularly successfully. It's been a rough go. Uh, and that's without talking about the fact of, of this uh, earthquake that even postponed these elections to begin with. We didn't even hardly talk about that. But, you know, it's worth saying that there was a massive natural disaster that like made a lot of people who previously were AKP voters very upset with the AKP over, you know, basically using like pocketing construction money and constructing substandard buildings in that came down in the earthquake. So, and there's all sorts of, you know, it hasn't exactly been like sunshine and rainbows for Erdogan for a long time. I mean, probably since maybe Gezi Park would be a turning point. What do we make of the fact that like Erdogan's almost won and probably will win, almost certainly will win in the runoff here? Like what, what, what accounts for that? So I think Jesse might want to talk about the long-term economic prognosis. I think there was a real sense that among people who feel like Turkey is screwed, that it's screwed either way. One of the things it speaks to is the uh, inability of the opposition to really unite um, uh, around a uh, an inspiring figure. Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu just really feels like the CHP man out of central casting, you know, which is not very appealing if, like a lot of Turks, you are not attracted to Kemalism, you're not attracted to his brand of politics, which historically has not been super successful over the last half century. Another factor is, um, you know, this is a uh, probably not a huge factor, but it is worth noting that votes abroad were very strongly for Erdogan, that the, the diaspora feels very strongly about Erdogan. There are a variety of reasons for this, one of which is that, um, you know, if you're abroad, you're, uh, you're likelier to be subject to racism and to find Erdogan's pan-Islamic identity, you know, appealing. And also that if you get paid in euros, what has happened to the Turkish economy is really nice because now you can go to Turkey and live like a king, even if you're just like a manual worker in Germany. On the whole, I think this, this election result, it speaks to the extent to which I think it's impossible to really imagine something different for a lot of people, which I guess is a sentiment that you might associate with low turnout, which is not ha- what happened here. Turnout is over 90%. But... um the opposition is not able to persuade people that it that it'll be better than Erdogan. It it hasn't been able to make a positive argument for itself. It hasn't been able to sh- to make enough voters believe that something different is really possible. And of course, another factor is this alliance of basically every opposition force has meant that um, the CHP, the Turkish nationalists, have now had to be in bed with the Kurds, which alienates a lot of people and and on the one hand you know the AKP tried to take advantage of this via its long-standing alliance with the uh, nationalist movement party the MHP the gray wolf party as it were um, for the Turkish nationalists and on the other hand it also placed on its list several members of the uh, Kurdish Hezbollah party for Kurdish Islamists so it's really it's really playing both sides and I think just being the party of government, being in power for 20 years, has enabled it to organize the entire political system around itself in a way where this is possible. That's This is one of the big advantages politically of being a governed party. You can do things like this. Um, and to a large extent, I think they were successful in that. 
Well, Jesse, let's, why don't you talk about a little bit about, you know, the economic policies leading up to the 2023 election and then what your prognosis is for the Turkish economy going forward? Because I, I, you know, I'm interested to see if you think there's a way out of the sort of the conundrum they're in. To begin to understand why the election result was the way it was with Erdogan nearly winning outright in the first round. I think it's important to remember that, you know, they were holding levers of power and they were using every lever at their disposal to try and win the election. In hindsight, it now appears that this was arguably their only objective um, in, in their actions. As an example of types of policies that were announced in the run up to the election, at the tail end of 2022, there was an announcement of an abrupt change. So um, 2.3 million Turks were made eligible for retirement overnight without warning. Now, Turkey has a very generous um, pension system, like social security for retirees. Basically, it replaces almost all of formal income for the you know vast majority of Turkish workers. So it's extremely, extremely attractive. What was the policy change? Basically, before 2000, it was the case that if you were a Turk, you could... Um, retire after working like 20 years in the formal labor market. Um, now, so with some caveats, this, this sorry, it's 25 years for men and like 20 for women. There was a change in that and it implemented a retirement age. So you had to be a certain age before you collected retirement benefits. Overnight, what Erdogan did is he said that if you were, sorry, if you ended, entered the labor force, started working and it was 1999, you're eligible to retire as long as you work for 20 years, or if you're a woman and 25, if you're a man with no um, relation to the retirement age policy, completely unannounced. Obviously, I think it's worth considering the fact that if you're uh, a member of this group, and before the policy announcement, you were an AKP voter, but in the previous elections, but you were feeling very annoyed by the economic crises experienced under Erdogan. This could change your view. It could be a pivotal thing. After all, it could be a life-changing event for you. At the same time as this type of policy was announced, there was uh, an unexpected announcement that the minimum wage would be increased by, I believe, 50%. Now, the minimum wage in Turkey, to my understanding, like in many countries, there is a recurring feature where usually it increases roughly in line with inflation. So this was a 50% increase above and beyond the inflation-adjusted increase before. There's also a big announcement about uh, extremely large pay increase for public sector employees received a large salary increase. This is just a sampling of various policies that were rolled out before the election. These are very big policies because, of course, public sector employees will be a large part of Turkish workers, a big part of the formal um, labor market Obviously, to this millions of retirees getting this type of benefit is a big deal for them and their families. Coinciding with all of this is the fact that interest rates are falling, which is a very dangerous thing when you're thinking about the rate of inflation and when you're thinking about um, you know the issues relating to the currency crisis. However, due to the government's basically backstopping, of people's uh, lira and insuring them against depreciation risk. In a sense, it's almost like there can be this artificial situation where interest rates are allowed to be extremely low without this having a tremendous impact on inflation or causing a currency crisis because the government can just spend down its foreign currency reserves to pay for this along with its very generous government policies. The result is a situation where the Turkish economy, at least in terms of output, 
in terms of unemployment is actually doing rather well before the election. And coinciding with this, inflation arguably is declining, even if we think of ignore the fact that those inflation statistics could be quite manipulated. It does seem it was declining in the run up to the election. Overall, I think the result is that people's impressions of the economy were improving quite substantially. If you look at consumer sentiment in Turkey over the past six, seven, eight months, it has actually recovered to levels that are almost about where they were in 2018, which is really interesting. And I think something that's overlooked. Um, You can always argue that this is actually just a rally around the flag effect where people who are AKP voters just decide, I'm going to say that I think the economy is going to do well because, um, you know, I'm listening to party propaganda. But I tend to think that this is probably a real reaction to actual changes in economic conditions. Um, A lot of people benefited from sudden wage hikes due to the change in minimum wage policy or getting retirement benefits. In contrast with this, think about what the opposition is saying and its messaging in effect. Actually, there's recorded statements from, um, for instance, economic policy advisor to the IYI, a member of the coalition, where he's basically going around to like Bloomberg and other um, sites saying, you know, we're going to, you know, do what is required to kind of solve the currency crisis, you know, basically implying that, you know, we're going to do austerity measures. In some sense, it can seem a lot like the opposition is going to come into power and immediately do some sort of shock therapy. And that also given AKP party rhetoric, kind of implying that they're in the league with, you know, the big bad West. Then suddenly, I think in practice, I think people in Turkey aren't fools. Like they can sense that if the opposition does get into power, that while they are promising a restructuring, you know, it it's not a very appealing message in a sense, right? Like I think that the opposition was telling the truth about the reality of the economic situation. And I think that, it, you know, they weren't saying anything wrong and I don't think their advisors are saying anything wrong, but the reality is, is that it's not exactly um, an inspiring type of economic vision to be forwarding, even if it's necessary. Of course, I think you can claim that Erdogan's foreign policy in some sense was allowing for the you know, Turkish economy to limp along. So overall, my prognosis would be that I think I honestly think the economic measures are quite central to understanding why Erdogan was able to to win. But there's like many other factors as well. Is he going to get away with it? Basically, is he is he going to be able to get through this and there's not going to be a problem? Or is is he just forestalling the inevitable? I've been wrong about this before because I thought that in 2018 that he was doomed, but somehow he managed to string together. I think he's just set up an even bigger catastrophe. This is really bad. If you look at foreign exchange reserves right now that Turkey has, they are falling off a cliff. It seems like there's a real risk of a balance of payment crisis. It could happen rather quickly, honestly, given all of these measures. And I'm not sure if foreign governments like Qatar and UAE and Saudi Arabia will have a great incentive to get involved, given that the election results have already gone the way they likely wanted them to go. But we'll see, I guess. (laughs) I I can't imagine this ends well. I think it could be quite bad. Um, This is a dire situation.
from a foreign policy standpoint, he's playing a really dangerous game. I mean, he has been for a while. I mean, we've been talking about the relationship between Turkey and Russia. If uh, Turkey is dependent on Russian lines of credit, uh, even in part, you know, that's a, that's pretty significant, especially when you consider um, that outside the Islamic world, Turkey's greatest source of soft power right now is probably the Bayraktar TB2 drone. That's the uh, the world's greatest war drone. It won the war in Nagorno-Karabakh uh, for Azerbaijan. And more importantly to the West, it's been used in great numbers by the Ukrainian military against Russia. Um, so you see Erdogan's trying to play both sides, particularly since the company that manufactures the Bayraktar drone, uh, its chairman is uh, one Selçuk Bayraktar, whose wife is a... Uh, one Sumeye Erdogan, daughter of the president. You can see a few things there. One of them is you can see how the uh, the military industrial complex these days is actually very closely entwined with the government, with the Erdogan movement. The military sort of made its peace with, uh, with the Erdogan government. And you can also see just how many different places Turkey has its hand in the pot. You know, if, if any of them go bust, then uh, things could get bad. The last thing I wanted to talk about was the the emergence of like red state blue state turkey and just some very interesting parallels i think between turkish elections and and like us politics maybe the most striking thing i think is that you know the the opposition that came together here you know it sort of did what the democrats did in their 2020 primary which is it picked sort of the old safe pair of hands and that obviously worked for the democrats against trump but it didn't work uh well it seems like it's not going to work for the turkish opposition here you know there's there's other candidates in in Turkey who maybe were more dynamic or represented a different kind of a different vision of society that that just sort of harkened back to a uh, pre-AKP Kamalist central casting, like Naveed said. You, you know, what does it say about sort of like centrist politics in our age that the, all these retreads come through, you know, and that like it's just it's always like retreading the same, like often even the same people, but like the same ideas and the same supposed crises in the same culture wars. I mean, culture war is a part of Turkish politics, too, with headscarf politics being a classic example of that that got trotted out this election, despite the fact that it hasn't been a live issue in the country for probably a dozen years. So what, what do we make of this similarities, I guess, between Turkish politics and American politics, but specifically for sort of just this this feeling of like being stalled out, that it just feels like there's no impetus for anything. And that like, you know, there I mean, there is certainly some interesting dynamism on, for, on Erdogan's part, doing all these crazy economics and kind of walking this tightrope between with his economic policy and also his foreign policy. But, you know, it's like the best thing that the opposition can promise when they come in is that they're going to what, like do austerity so that, that they can be fiscally responsible or something like that. I mean, that's not something that necessarily is inspiring to people or that suggests a vision of the future. And well, you know, there are other big promises that they're going to undo the electoral the you know the making the president the chief executive basically which is a, a perfect democrat u.s democrat proposal too and that it's all about sort of procedure and ensuring that you know it's basically like if we ensure the correct procedure then the correct outcomes will surely follow so so i wondered you know what, what do we think of that? Uh, one of their all-time bangers like their big banger which is deport all immigrants basically <laughs> very inspiring Right. That, that's another thing that we, I guess, didn't really talk about is that the opposition in, in this election, Kilishtarlu, has basically made the Syrian refugees like the ultimate bogeyman of the, of this election and saying that, like, all of our problems are down to them. And Erdogan is, you know, too busy kissing the asses of all these refugees to, like, do anything good for real Turkish people or whatever. So 
in that in that way, it's sort of like they're really doing the Obama deporter in chief thing like tenfold or something like that, you know? The real triumph of Erdogan, one of them has been to orient Turkish politics around himself. After a period of decades where Turkish politics were very unstable, and before that where they were oriented around the other side, around the uh, Kemalist legacy. And so when you think about a uh, figure who's managed to orient the whole country's politics around his person, where everyone is either with him or against him, well, you know, there's an obvious uh, analogy to that in recent American politics. I think the fact that the opposition is just placed in an inherently reactive role in that sense does contribute to some of the sense of passivity, to the sense of the inability to uh, articulate something positive. And another factor here is that, um, you know, much like the way things were 25 years ago, the um, popular opposition mayor of Istanbul is uh, having some uh, legal issues. You know, this time it's um, Ekrem Imamoglu um, of the CHP, who was elected in 2019, um, who was actually elected twice because they declared the first election null, but he won by more the second time. And anyway, he's a... He's been seen as a more dynamic figure, you know, as a figure who is uh, who maybe wouldn't make it as easy to like bring up ten-year-old wedge issues as Kilosterolu does, but he's facing his own legal processes brought by the government. If we're talking, as long as we're talking about Imamalu, um, I- it struck me that he's sort of like a a, a figure sim- somewhat similar to like uh, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Do you get that sense at all? And that I think Obrador was a popular mayor sort of during Pan rule but then has sort of gone his own way since then. And is, is sort of more of a heterodox figure in the politics of Mexico. It seemed to me that Imamalu sort of had a similar trajectory and, and possibly I'm just sort of project like future casting, but my guess is that like CHP politics is not the, the route that someone who has like real dynamism would take to actually come to power in Turkey uh, against sort of an AKP, whether that's Erdogan or a successor or something like that. So I don't know. Do you have any? Does that seem like a, a good comparison, or is that just like two out of left field? I mean, I think that th- th- there there's some, there's something interesting to that. It's not um, necessarily the first um, comparison I would make. I think sort of a facile thing in like American politics, and I really hate this word authoritarian or authoritarianism, because it seems to suggest that that's like a political ideology when it's when it's actually just like, if anything, sort of a, you know, State Department approved way of talking about like countries that have uh, strong executives, you know, but people talk about like this sort of authoritarian or what's the other word that they say that's like authoritarian? Well, they love describing things as regimes. Well, yeah, I try to not use that word when I can help it because it's just such a dumb. It's either you're when you're talking about that, you're either talking about like some like Leo Straussian like bullshit, you know, something about like the regime and like how you need to tell noble lies to keep the regime afloat, or you're talking you're just like parroting the State Department, like because it's like a scary word to talk about governments you don't uh, like. I think the new one that's really come in vogue since Trump's election has been describing anything that is disliked kind of by liberal elites as being populist that's without having any real relation to like a rigorous definition about what populism means and i think absolutely this is applied to erdogan in this case you know i can see there being 
merits in some i mean it's a popular i think there's popular politics for sure but yeah well yeah so anyways uh you know this this idea of like being authoritarian like people like to lump in erdogan with modi or with putin or with uh you know the guy what's the name of rod dreyer's messinas in hungary orban yeah orban and we we love to have this idea that there's this this sort of global like right wing authoritarian movements. And I guess, you know, Erdogan gets put in that because of there's all sorts of unsavory things that the Erdogan government has done, especially regarding like the coastal liberal elites that like, of course, the American Democrats feel sympathy with. And I mean, a lot of these things are just not things that you would want, you know, that you or I or maybe anyone with good taste would want their government to do, like put put a bunch of journalists in jail or kill them or, you know, do all this other stuff. It's it's not nice things. I mean, he's his politics on some level doesn't it has a very sort of dirty aspect to it now of course you know if you want to play the what about game i mean you know <laughs> it's not like our beloved beautiful american government ha- doesn't have its own you know dirty side too but but what do we make of this this sort of facile lumping in of erdogan with you know these other big bads of the world of world politics you know he's a rough contemporary of putin they've both been in power for about 20 years putin i think about five ish years more you know what do we think about this uh about, you know, Erdogan, the autocrat or whatever. The fundamental issue with comparisons to Putin or Orban is that Turkey is not a post-communist state, which, you know, really alters the entire makeup of civil society, specifically the fact that Turkey has civil society in a way that Hungary or Russia do not. It is a, it is a really nice label to attach for, um, you know, for those of us who uh, who are looking for abroad and don't want to think too hard. Because Turkey is really hard to understand. It's like, you know, you brought up the point uh, earlier about the CHP. It's like, what political party is this like? And the answer is none of them really. It's like, what region is Turkey in? It's not really European. It feels kind of silly to call it that. But at the same time, Turks don't view themselves as part of the Middle East. They don't speak Arabic. Thinking about this just gets at the ways that Turkey is weird and different and hard to classify. In much the same way that India is hard to classify because... It's its own thing, you know. For that reason, I think it's uh, it's hard to compare Erdogan to anyone else. I'm just struck by you know Turkey's been a country that's been very interesting to me ever since you know like when I was a freshman. I took a freshman seminar just randomly on like the history of modern Turkey, and I mean there were so many things that I've learned about the country over the last whatever 15 years since then, and we talked about like five percent of them over the last like two hours. I mean, it's just a fascinating country. And I think it's it's very annoying to me that because Erdogan is sort of on this, like he's like on the State Department, like advisory list of like, he might be a dictator or something. So like the way that we are presented him in our media is so sort of, I think does a dis- disservice to like what Turkish politics is like, and also just like what Turkey is like. And of course, you know, I'm not, that, none of that is to say that like Erdogan's a good guy or that like what he's done vis-a-vis like, the Kurds or journalists or anything really in his country is good. Of course, I mean, like I'm, you know, I'm not literally a coastal elite, unlike certain people on this podcast, but, but, you know, I have, I have the same sort of sentiments and sympathies as a coastal elite would. So I I personally don't like these things, but I also just think, you know, if you just think that he's like a dictator or something, you just don't understand anything. Like the first thing about Turkish politics, I don't think. And, and, you know, that sounds like a real academic point that sounds like saying, oh, well, 
who cares if I understand the first thing about Turkish politics? All I need to understand is this guy's bad or whatever. And sure, whatever, that's fine. But like, you know, this is such an important country and such an important place in the world that's had such a unique sort of world historical development and also just like stands at such a unique geographic place and with such a unique one foot in one camp and one foot in the other at this pivotal time in history that if you don't really understand like what its political system is is like and like and if you're just willing to say oh they just have a dictator there he's just like the putin but he you know he speaks turkish instead of russian or whatever you're just not you're missing the point you're like kind of throwing away your opportunity to understand a huge part of like the contemporary world i think yeah and this makes me think about something that you uh alluded to earlier which is the sort of division in Turkish society. Even if you leave out the Kurds, uh, Turkey is a remarkably divided society. Um, on the one hand, you have the coastal elites, the people who live on the coast who uh, tend to be much less religious, who tend to identify much more strongly with the heritage of the secular state, and who have produced most of the ruling class of Turkey throughout the uh, 100 years of the Republic. And on the other hand, you have you know, the Anatolians, the inlanders, you know, less rich, probably less educated, much more religious, and people who were for the first 80 years of the Republic largely excluded from the levers of government, uh, who now have their man in power, who have a government that speaks to them. Obviously, if you're coming at this from a, uh, from the perspective of Western media, from the perspective of someone who might be in, involved in media, Obviously, one of those groups is the one that you're going to relate to much more. It's the former. It's the coastal elites. Um, it's the people for whom religion is not the defining part of their identity. And so it's natural for your sympathies to lie there. But it is really facile to just go from that to describing, you know, Recep type Erdogan as a populist and just leaving it there as if that's, you know, that's the last word, as if it says anything in particular about him. I think that's that's an easy trap to fall into. And it, it, it is why, if you're going to uh, understand the world, you really need to know about the social divisions of countries to understand what's going on within countries instead of just, you know, looking at the great dictator. One of the great ironies of these descriptions of Erdogan is that you know, I think that if you look at them from a broad perspective, taking into account the first 10 years when he was in power or so before, you know, the big uh, park protests in 2013. I think that if someone only knew about that part of Erdogan's tenure in power, um, they would have a sense of whiplash if you told them that he would be described as an authoritarian, or if he was going to be described as, you know, in all these negative hostile terms or compared to Vladimir Putin. Because I think that, you know, I don't want to go as far to say from an objective standpoint, but I think that there's an argument to be made that in many ways he was a liberalizing force in Turkey, kind of opening up Turkish society uh, so that there was more expressions of um, you know, religious freedom, having a much more liberal line on issues relating to ethnic minorities like the Kurds, and um, actually being quite friendly to the European Union. And, you know, being quite um, friendly with other, you know, Western countries. And, um, you know, he was actually portrayed in the Western media as being a, you know, trying almost as if like he was kind of a poster boy for the idea that in an Islamic country, there could be something like Christian democracy, 
where you could have an Islamic political party that was like similar to the Christian Democrats. And, um, you know, you can find clips of like uh, Fareed Zakaria talking about this in 2006. Now this guy is an authoritarian. Now, I think obviously his character in power has changed. The context has changed dramatically. His behavior has changed. Policies have changed and so on. And um, there's an element of truth to all this. But I think what's left out from the conversation is the extent to which the opposition in Turkey you know, is associated with, you know, elites in Turkey that insofar as you could say they have political representatives in power, in many ways, they could be associated with the so-called deep state. This is not, uh, this was not friendly to people in Anatolia in any way. And it wasn't friendly to them economically, certainly. So, and it wasn't friendly to them in any other way, in reality. So, and I think one thing to note is that Turkey is an extremely unequal country as well. Um, I, like it is, this is not an equal society. It's extremely unequal if you look at the Gini coefficient. It's, you know, it's not quite at more extreme levels in Latin America, but it's very, very high. It's, it's very close by. So the people who are drinking beer in Izmir, they look indistinguishable from somebody in Western Europe. That, that has an economic meaning as well, honestly. It maps onto those economic divisions. So, and that just leads to even more polarization, I think. Yeah. Does it, does anyone have any predictions for the runoff other than Erdogan winning? No, that seems like it's going to happen. I guess we can just sort of <laughs> in a desultory manner basically say that it seems like the 5% of voters who didn't vote for either of them mainly voted for like right like a very right-wing candidate uh coalition or whatever. So, is that yeah, that's and, accurate, right? And, yeah, and you know, Erdogan was so close already. Um right. and the fact that he was so close will probably also depress opposition turnout to some extent right yeah i mean so you it, know, it's hard to imagine it just seems it doesn't seem like the votes are there for him you know uh for the for kira starlu i mean maybe we can get the uh, equivalent of some political science guy to talk you know that they they wheel out once every year to talk about how like you know loudon county is really going for <laughs> for biden this year or whatever you know <laughs> Well, the outstanding results here are actually in, uh, you know, they're along the Black Sea coast, which that's a classic uh, Kirishtarlu, uh, you know, stronghold. So, yeah, exactly. We're, we're, we're in agreement. We think it's probably going to be uh, Reggie taking his whatever term this is. Any other predictions you want to make for, you know, the near future of Turkey? I guess not. All right, cool. Well, <laughs> we've been at this for like almost three hours, so <laughs> that's probably a good time to call it. Thanks, Naveed. Thanks, Jesse. And uh Try to get this posted. The election's in a week, so I'll try to get it posted this week so that it's actually timely. Not something that usually happens with our podcast. So, 